hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I'm here with an old friend of mine, a very special guest. Some of you may have come across him. He is a fellow Brit who also found his way to be sucked across to this side of the pond. I'm here with Joe Boot. Joe, great to see you again. It's been a long time. How are you doing? Likewise, yeah. Uh, it's um, I can't remember how many years it's been now, but I'm doing well. And it's nice to see you and, and glad to see yeah, you're uh, settled in the US now. Yeah, well, uh, you, uh, if I recall, um, well, maybe you'll share with our listeners and viewers, but um, you uh, served in Canada as well as in the UK. Why don't you just give, some people may not have come across your work. Why don't you give us just a quick sketch of where your ministry has um, taken mm -hmm. you low these many years, and then we'll just jump into some of the big themes that um, people who have read your work will know you for. Where have you been? Where have you been serving? Mm -hmm. So my ministry began actually in the United Kingdom in my early 20s. I My first role was as the national evangelist for an organization called the Salt Mine Trust uh, based in the um, Midlands area. And so that would take me into everything from um, young offenders institutions and to uh, schools, hotels, churches, this kind of thing, uh, touring usually with a musical outfit. Or, or their theater company, doing basically evangelism, preaching. And that's where I, I actually met my wife. After that, I was three years in Southwest London. Um, I was serving as the director of evangelism and um, pastoral associate for an Anglican church in Fulham. Um, I was there for three years before I ended up in Oxford. Um, and I was two years in Oxford with the now um, fallen um, RZIM, uh, apologetics organization. Um, yeah. I was two years there uh, and I was asked by that organization to go and start an apologetics ministry in Canada. And that's actually how I ended up in Canada in 2003. Uh, so I launched uh, an offer, an apologetics ministry for um, the RZIM organization uh, and led that for five years until 2008 before handing it over. Um, and um, at that juncture, I uh, planted a church in downtown Toronto called Westminster Chapel in 2008. And I led that church for, um, well, I was the founding pastor for 14 years. I led the church for 10 years. Mm. Um, and there we started uh, Westminster Classical Christian Academy as well uh, in downtown Toronto. It was in 2009 that I launched the Ezra Institute. And uh, the Ezra Institute started in Toronto. Um, uh, some years later, we um, uh, moved out just just outside of Toronto, around the lake a little bit to, to uh, the Niagara Peninsula, where we were doing training. Um, and uh, we've since then uh, opened offices of Ezra in uh, the United States in Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and um, back in England. So it was actually last year that following... Uh, the uh, the COVID era um, and uh, all that went along <laughs> with that um, th and the opportunities that were presenting themselves for the Institute. And because of my, my parents, my wife's parents, my children's education and so forth, that after 19 years serving in Canada, we decided to, um, to, to come back to the United Kingdom. I sent a colleague to the US to launch our US office. Uh, and um, we've started the Ezra Center for Christian Thought in the UK. So now I basically have to bounce around between those three places, uh, between the, the US, Canada, and, and the UK for, for the organization, for the ministry. But we have got a new Canadian director um, and, and a US director. So most of my time the last five years has been focused on the development and um, building of the, of the Ezra Institute. And the Ezra Institute, for those who don't know, is a worldview and cultural apologetics uh, think tank and training organization. So we're seeking to engage culture and then equip Christians to think Christianly about every area of life. That's basically the mission of, of Ezra. Right, very good. So um, I was going to ask you, that was my next question. The, uh, the Ezra Institute, the name will have been pretty well chosen. Um, give us a, a yeah. line or two about that. Why Ezra? Yeah. That's, that's actually quite frequently asked, and uh, there's partly because in Canada there's a, a sort of well-known TV cons conservative TV personality called Ezra Ezra Levant, 
Um, it's got <laughs> nothing to do with him, I assure you. Um, so the the name actually, when when we conceived the the institute, uh, rested on the that that period in the history of God's people, Ezra Nehemiah, which uh, I believe at one time was one mm-hmm. book. Um, and uh, when yeah, yeah. the uh, the that era in the life and history of Israel is addressed, it's usually the sermons and preaching is on Nehemiah because Nehemiah is the guy who's rebuilding the walls and organizing the families. Mm. You know, right back to Spurgeon's famous uh, journal, the Sword and Trowel. Um, that whole idea of, of 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 rebuilding as God's people. Nehemiah is the one who usually gets the credit, and often Ezra, I found, was overlooked. And yet Ezra was the scholar who went in first and called the people back to the word of God and away from their idolatry, their mm. syncretism, basically, with the with the paganism. Uh, it had become a syncretistic culture and called them back to the law word of God. And uh, the people turned back to the Lord so that when Nehemiah came and said, right, who's up for rebuilding? There were actually volunteers. Hmm. Had Ezra's work not been done, I think Nehemiah's challenge would have been finding people who actually were interested in rebuilding. Right. And so we kind of see that reflected now culturally that we're in a time of, of, of decadence and, de- and decline in Western culture. Um, and God's people do need to rebuild. But in order to rebuild and have find volunteers for rebuilding the 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 work really of reformation uh, of cultural reformation the work of reformation in the life of the of the church um, of the redevelopment of a christian mind of 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 abandoning the syncretism i think that's characterized western mm. christianity for some time uh, and uh, returning to faithfulness so that uh, God can bless our rebuilding efforts and there will actually bol- be volunteers. I think hmm. that's the way we see the work of the Ezra Institute as a multi-generational task, really. It's helpful. It's helpful, Joe, because um, it, it struck me increasingly in recent months and years that uh, our efforts to shape our culture, and you pointed out rightly, a multi-generational efforts to shape our culture, are going to fail unless they are based on some fairly carefully thought through uh, reflection on the theology of culture and the yes. what scripture teaches about how to go about the task of addressing the social ills and the political ills of our age, as well as um, life within the church. I, I've got to wave up in front of people here. This is the book through which I first encountered you. Rather uh, cool cover here. looks like it ought to be um, a logo for a rock band. Um, the mission of God, um, and um, have you got a, yeah, another the version one, there with a slightly more muted and scholar? That's the old one, really. And and that's the, um, but you, that's the, you published that's the a bunch of other edition. things. That's a first edition. Right. Well, I got one. the first yeah. edition. This this was a gift to me from uh, Andrea Williams at uh, Christian Concern, which is another place where you and I've met. Uh, Christian Concern is a Christian think tank and legal uh, advocacy and representation institute and a public policy. Um, uh, uh, I guess analysis and campaigning organization in London. We we bumped into each other there, um, but you've I, before we go any further, just just mention a couple of other things that you've uh, written that people could grab a hold of if they wanted to read more about the things that I'm going to ask you about, because then they've got those sure. up front. What have you got? You've got something right there for us to show us. Yeah. So the mission the mission of God, which um, the the first edition you just waved around that that. Uh, um, was um, a, a year or so later uh, came out with Wilberforce Publications and Ezra Press uh, in North America mm. and then in Europe um, uh, in a slightly expanded uh, edition. Um, since then, a couple of books, uh, uh, well, three, three, three main books, but one that I will wave at you in just a second. So there was Gospel Culture, uh, which is an introduction to these things. So Mission of God is, as you know, fairly hefty tome. I think that the second edition is fairly about hefty. 700 pages. Um, so, uh, and, and, uh, that by God's grace has, has, um, done well and, 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 uh, it seems has influenced a lot of people, which obviously is huge encourage, encouragement to us as a ministry, um, slightly more bite-sized introductions to the themes, um, but, um, and not covering exactly the same ground at all, uh, gospel culture, um, looking at the crisis of the social order, um, the necessity of, of worldview thinking and engagement. Uh, the problems uh, with um, 
two kingdoms ideas that would militate against um, the uh, a cultural agenda of of uh, Christ's lordship over every area of life in terms of his word. And then a book called Gospel Witness, where I look at um, secular humanism, uh, Islam and uh, paganism as uh, sort of three uh, major worldviews that, that, are, that are challenging the Christian faith today. And then most recently, um, Ruler of Kings, which is, I think, the one uh, you wanted me to wave uh, toward. A oh, yeah. Christian yeah. Wave that around. That's a new one. Of, yeah. Toward a Christian view of government in which I um, specifically am exploring the themes of um, sphere sovereignty um, and uh, the the cult of the expert really is where it begins uh, with a look at how a new mm. priestly class has emerged. Um, the idea with the two sort of major views of uh, nationhood today, a sort of uh, utopian globalism and uh, biblical nationhood, uh, explore the rise of secularism and then deal with church and state and kingdom of God and um, the specific role of the state in relationship to the church. So, uh, Ruler of Kings came out uh, last year. Right, very good. So I wonder if we could just jump into some of these details then. So, I mean, in, in the background, you've already said that, if I could put it like this, the driving conviction of your writings and of your ministry is the lordship of Christ over every area of life. Um, you mentioned the doctrine of sphere sovereignty, uh, which, of course, is a, a Kuyperian idea. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch prime minister, statesman, uh, theologian, um, and so on. Um, do, do you want to flesh that out for us a little bit? What, what does it mean to say that we affirm Christ's lordship over every area of life? Mm -hmm. Well, in one sense, it doesn't sound that radical uh, when you uh, when you just talk about Jesus Christ as Lord, one would think that that would be the confession of every true believer. I think the challenges come when we start to ask ourselves, what are the implications of that and what does that actually mean? When you go all the way back, of course, to the first century and to the early church, the challenge for Christians there was that they were in the grip of a, a pagan and a statist uh, culture in which the emperor cult uh, dominated. In a certain sense, um, the emperor cult was a culmination of the pagan view of the state as we encounter it throughout much of the Bible, uh, in Egypt, in Babylon, um, in Persia, and so on. But it was very, very explicit in the first century. Augustus Caesar had declared himself to be a son of the gods, um, and uh, Pontifex Maximus, he was high priest, um, so there was no no such thing as a, um, a, a distinction or separation between uh, priesthood or church and state. Uh, the the uh, Caesar was a, a living God, and uh, the church, the early Christians were persecuted, not because people didn't like their dress code or didn't like their dietary habits or even that they wanted to worship a God. Um, you could pretty much worship anybody you liked in ancient Rome, so long as you offered incense to Caesar on the altar and said, Caesar is Lord. Um, if you acknowledge the priority of Caesar, of the lordship of man, of the state, um, then you can go and worship whatever god you wanted. That was the integrating concept for the Roman Imperium. Uh, that's how they held the empire together. It was the priority, uh, religious priority of Caesar. And then along comes this small band of Christians, and they say, as we see actually in Acts 17, not in the most famous part where Paul's at the Areopagus, but the earlier part of Acts 17, we see the Christians being accused of acting against Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, right. Jesus, uh, right. and turning the world upside down. That's what they were charged with. Well, they actually were. They were turning the world upside down. But today, uh, Steve, I think you know both of us would probably be uh, frustrated to the extent which sometimes our faith can barely pull people out of bed, let alone turn the world upside down. Um, but their understanding of Christ's lordship, uh, the charge was true. They were saying there was another king, and the mm. faithful church would not offer incense to Caesar so that they could be given a license by the state to go and worship Jesus. They said Jesus Christ right. is Lord. They weren't saying we don't think the state should exist. They weren't saying that they weren't prepared to pay their taxes or uh, give honor to whom honor is due, but they were saying that 
even in the earth, in this world, uh, Jesus Christ mm. is Lord. You can't shunt that claim off to uh, some heavenly, ethereal place. You can't shunt it off to another time in history at the eschaton, at the end of all things. You can't restrict it to uh, the the between the ears of the believer. Uh, that as long as I say Jesus is Lord in my mind, then that's sufficient. No, their claim mm. actually had socio-cultural implications that Christ's lordship meant that they had to honor Christ as Lord first over Caesar, just as Christ had said to Pontius Pilate, uh, you would have no, no authority over me, save it were given you from above. Uh, although the mm. kingdom is not uh, from this world in the sense that its power and authority does not arise here, the kingdom of God is in this world, in and through Jesus Christ. Right. And so the church began right. to work out the implications of that. And so um, the first truly free institution in the history of mankind was birthed, the Christian church, that asserted its independence from uh, the totalitarian state. Um, and the the gradual development of freedom and liberty began to occur in the West and the Christians began to start their own schools right. and hospitals and um, care centers for the elderly and, and businesses. And eventually their influence was so building, great. That building institutions. Yeah. Institution building, yeah. And their, their influence yeah. was so great that eventually Constantine looked around in parts of the empire and he said the only sound part of this empire is amongst the Christians. And he gave the bishops in certain territories the robes of a Roman magistrate. And he said, you give justice to the people because your courts are much more effective. He looked at the Christian courts and said, these are, they give justice, they're, they're speedy, because Christians, in obedience to Paul's command uh, to uh, have Christian courts of arbitration, why do you go to law against your brother? Are there not men amongst you who can judge in these things? Um, they started their own courts, hmm. and um, the, robes, the robes of the episcopacy, um, their origin uh, they are the magisterial robes of a of a Roman magistrate. Um, that's where they that's mm. where they come from. That's their origin, and so the church began to God's people began to apply the lordship of Jesus Christ to all areas of life steadily. It wasn't perfect. There were lots of mistakes. Things weren't always done right. But uh, with secularization, we've basically retreated from that mandate to, uh, in our confession. Uh, apply the, the apply that confession concretely, not just mm. in the life of the ecclesia, the church institute, but recognize that the basileia, the kingdom of God, is broader than just the church, but it includes the family, and obviously the church and the state, and the various other aspects of life are to be uh, under the authority of Christ and His Word. That's really what we mean, and. Um, Right. Working out a theology of that or a philosophy of that, if you like, and how that might apply in different areas. What would it mean to, to recognize Christ's lordship in law or medicine or politics or the sciences or the arts? Mm. That's really what the Ezra Institute is about. And we, we certainly right, right. Uh, don't claim originality there in the sense that we didn't initiate this project. Um, we're just trying to stand on the shoulders of some giants and, and apply it in our own time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You just going back a half a step or so to your the text you mentioned in the Book of Acts. I'm always struck uh, in the early chapters of the Book of Acts when the Christians are confronted by the uh, the Jewish authorities that the thing that really gets on their nerves is there's salvation in no one else. It's not, and and it's interesting when that that claim runs into the Roman authorities later in the book. You're exactly right. right. It's that that got the Christians in trouble. It wasn't their insistence on worshiping Jesus. It was their insistence that because Jesus is the risen Davidic king, it there, there's no alternative to him. And historically, and, and in, in Roman, yeah, I'm sure you know this, of course, but in Roman uh, propaganda, the terminology that is so familiar to us from the scriptures, salvation, uh, peace, even the gospel, uh, euangelion, yes. was deployed also in Roman propaganda. Um, the, mm. the Roman emperor was the one who would bring peace 
the the gospel was the death of a Caesar or the birth of a new one, um, uh, and the the claims of the church therefore have to be seen against that background that uh, yeah. Christ is the King and the only King in whom this wholeness, peace, uh, salvation, soteria can be found. So what, what, I want to push this with you a little bit then, because what that raises is precisely the detailed problem of, so how do the claims of Christ as Lord of all relate to these different Kuyperian spheres? I mean, you mentioned, um, let's say the state, uh, the church as an ecclesial, a worshipping community, um, the family, uh, maybe other institutions. I know Kuiper would include like the educational sphere as a distinct mm. uh, domain of human life. And, and maybe there are others as well, the workplace and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And it strikes me that a lot of our problems come when we don't know how to respond to the greatest false god of our age, the state, when it overreaches. It, it'll mm. reach into areas of life, spheres that don't properly belong to it, and start making authoritative sounding claims there. And, and we struggle to figure out how to respond to that. And we, we know what the world should look like, but we're not exactly sure what to do and what to say when the state pushes us against what it should look like. Do you want to speak mm-hmm. to that question? Yeah. Well, um, you, you raised some really important uh uh, points there just as asides uh you know the the terms that the the early church took over curios of course lord uh being one of them mm-hmm. um even ecclesia was about the the gathered council yeah. for the government of uh, a given region um so that whole idea of authority of rule of you know kingship and so forth um uh for most modern Christians, they, they are a little bit lost unless it's unless it's properly exegeted, as you've just done there. People don't really um, uh, understand what those connections would have been and what the implications were of that for, for Christians. So you rightly mention um, Abraham Kuyper, uh, who probably coined the expression sphere sovereignty. I would say that mm. just like the Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, um, but it's there by uh, full and necessary implication and and uh, is deployed later. Mm. Um, and you'd know better than me who first it was. It might have been Tertullian, I can't remember. But uh, um, it, we don't find that word there. And I, I grant straight away uh, to those who may be listening that well, I've never read the words sphere sovereignty in the Bible. I grant that that's not there. Mm. Um, but the, the, the reality of sphere sovereignty very much is. And so uh, the first point would be that uh, of sphere sovereignty is that Jesus Christ is Lord and King over everything. Of course, this is made crystal clear throughout Scripture. I mean, take Psalm two or Psalm one hundred and ten. These are the these great psalms about the messianic mm-hmm. kingship and rule over all the nations and the obligation of of rulers and justices and magistrates to do homage to the Son. Um, this is fundamental to the idea of sphere sovereignty that Christ is over all and that all authority is just a delegated authority. So all human authority only has legitimacy uh, where it is actually um, delegated by God who has all authority. So when we talk about sphere sovereignty, we don't mean that these spheres, other spheres of life that you mentioned are independent uh, as though they can have an, Mm -hmm. an authority of their own. Their authority is derived now, it's obvious, you know, when we open the book of Genesis, we see that God establishes that first uh, human institution, uh, marriage and family, um, as a distinct sphere and mm-hmm. a pre-political sphere at that, which the modern state seems to have forgotten when it thinks it can redefine marriage uh, by politics, um, is that you can't, that's what the state doesn't give, it, it, it cannot take, it can't redefine. Um, and so mm. the, the family is established. We then see the state, really in Genesis 9, it, it first appears by implication. Uh, if man shares, sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. I think it's Genesis 8 and 9 there, where Noah is emerging from uh, mm-hmm. the ark. Um, and God's concern is that the earth does not descend into the same degree of wickedness. 
and of course uh, the establishment of Christ's church, which Jesus institutes um, himself. Um, and yeah, there, if we had time, we could talk about um, some of the some of the others. But uh, the idea here is that um, these spheres of authority, because they are all under Christ, mutually delimit each other. So uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 they're touching in the sense that I am a member of a church. I'm also um, a, a husband and a father. So I'm a, a member of a family. I'm a, I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a husband. Um, I'm a, uh, a churchman. Um, and uh, a churchman who's who's uh, pastored a church, been been a, been a pastor within a church, even today, uh, some by some miracle, have a preaching license from the Bishop of St Albans, because um, uh, I'm I live between <laughs> London and Cambridge in Hertfordshire, um, and uh, uh, so I have responsibilities there. And then um, the the uh, the state, I'm a citizen. I'm I'm a, I'm by mm. birth I'm a citizen of of the United Kingdom and I'm also a citizen of Canada I'm a dual citizen. So those spheres all touch one another but the jurisdictions of each of those are distinct they're different. Mm. Uh and uh, we see this in seed form very much in the Old Testament where there is a distinct separation between the Old Testament church uh, uh the priesthood and um, the st- and the king, the state. So uh, Saul, you'll recall, um, and your listeners will, will doubtless remember, presumptuously disobeys Samuel, presumed to act as priest in making a sacrifice, loses the kingdom for it. Mm-hmm. That's not the only incident where a king presumes to act as priest, um, and uh, the the results are very very negative because there is a there is a, a separation, a distinction there. Um, and uh, mm. as we look at the governance of the church, we see that the family, there are certain familial qualifications for leadership in the life of the church. Um, the husband of but one wife ruling his household well and so on and so forth. But the family is not the church. So sphere sovereignty means mm-hmm. that we each, the family, the church, the state, in, if we just take those three spheres for simplicity's sake for now, um, they are all subject to Christ. And their spheres of authority, their spheres of delimited sovereignty, mutually limit the other spheres. Now, totalitarianism, Mm. um, you've identified the great problem of our era, which is the overreach of the state. When we hear that word totalitarianism, we tend to think jackboots, dictators, and so on. But that actually Mm. is not the meaning of that's authoritarianism. Totalitarianism is the view that one of these spheres can treat the others in a part-to-whole relationship. That we could treat the church and the family as merely a lesser part of the state. So totalitarianism is when a given sphere swallows the others and treats it as a lesser part of itself. The parts of the state proper are municipalities, um, those are the parts of the state. The church is not a part of the state. It may reside within a given state, but it is not. Uh, it, it is not in a parts to whole relationship with the state. Neither mm. is the family. Mm. Um, now, if you if you try to run the family um, like a state, and fathers start sending their children to prison or executing their own sons, like the pater familiaris in uh, in Roman times. Um, you've got a tyrannical family. If the church right. were to behave either like the nuclear family or the state, it would be a, an abusive and tyrannical church. You'd have you'd be moving into that ecclesiocracy type of environment. Mm. If the family acts like the state, you have a mafia. Uh, and, and if the <laughs> right. uh, uh, which is you know. It has been seen. I mean, you know, mafias are not yeah, that uncommon. Yeah. Where basically family is conflated with the with the state, become blood becomes the all important totalizing principle. When the state, you, know, you have though, a version becomes, of that in 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 gang communities as well, right? You have a, a version of that where um, either family or other kind of relationships that are not properly author- authorized civil government take control of a part of a city, say. Absolutely. Yeah. A good example of that would be cartels in in, in Mexico, 
um, that are effectively mm-hmm. sort of pseudo criminal states. Um, so uh, in each of those mm-hmm. different spheres, you can see how 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 tyranny is possible, how to, how a totalitarian posture is possible. The modern secular state has gradually lost sight of the principle, the creational principle, I believe, of sphere sovereignty. Um, and has started, especially since the Second World War, to um, expand beyond all comprehension, really, and move into every single area of life to seek to control it in one way or another. Um, mm. And that is totalitarianism. We're seeing this totalitarian drift, this totalitarian creep of of the state. Uh, we could say that the medieval... Right church with its sort of medieval theocracy was tending towards a totalizing view of of the church institute um the cartels the mafiosos the, the you know tend towards this totalizing view of the family um uh, and the state today with secularism pagan secularism really uh, is moving back to this greco-roman view of the state as the totalizing mm-hmm. institution not the kingdom of god the state and many Christians have almost right. de facto accepted this particular view of the state, and I think that has become the the dominant religion of our culture, pagan statism. Right, right, and it's fascinating because I mean, your point: this totalitarian creep uh, arises because citizens want it. I mean, it, it's fascinating in post World War II Britain. The welfare mm-hmm. state and the National Health Service expanded. Well, the National Health Service was basically began, and the welfare state expanded hugely. And that was almost like the implicit or, at times, explicit promise made by the civil government to the citizens. You know, if we get if we get through this, or when we get through this conflict with Nazi Germany and the um, the Axis allies and, and the Axis, uh, will then you'll have this. This is what we'll give you, and the. That you've got this perverse situation, which is almost like a contemporary mirror of ancient Israel, where it's like in Jeremiah's words, they've abandoned the fountain of living water and dug out cisterns for themselves in an, in a, an attempt to create a source of salvation. There we go again for themselves, but in fact, yeah. it's going to do them harm. And and what it raises in my mind is, okay, so you you've got this. We we have this scenario you depicted where. All, all these spheres that ought to be um, overlapping but distinct under the rule of Christ, overlapping in the sense that you know, people can can be and are in more than one of them, but they have their distinct jurisdictions. What's happened is that the the state has grown and swallowed up or sought to swallow up all the others. And, and we know what the goal is in one sense. The goal is the proper orientation of all those spheres to each other and to Christ, which is to say the Christianization of the world, which is to say the, the knowledge of the Lord will be will spread across the world as the waters cover yeah. the sea. But this raises a process question. So it's, it's one thing to define, here's where we'd like to get to. It's another thing to answer the question, right, what do we do next? And one of the temptations, it seems to me, is to compound the problem by so to speak, treating political power as the only game in town. So mm. here's what I mean. The, the, the mistake of tyranny in the way that you've defined it is to regard political power as the only legitimate one and to submit everything else to it. So the danger is that we could respond by saying, well, actually, what we need to do is to take up those tools of political power and seek to wield them against the civil authorities. And of course, there are legitimate ways of doing that. And you, you could vote for a candidate who's a Christian or or more consistently Christian. But it strikes me that we've got deeper questions to answer because scripturally, isn't it the case that the way that the process ought to operate by which those spheres come to relate properly to each other is by the proper operation of those other spheres. So it's men and women and children in families, and it's churches worshipping faithfully. Just to take a couple of examples, it's through that that God works to reestablish and overthrow the presumptuous and tyrannical overreach of the civil authorities. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want to speak to that question? Like, What do we actually mm-hmm. do day to day 
to make sure that we're not just buying into the same statist vision of the opponents of the gospel. Yes, and that's probably uh, the the point at which the rubber most hits the road in all the contemporary discussions now uh, about hmm. um, the, the relationship of the gospel to, to culture, the claims of Christ to the state, and so on. Um, you know, if we want Caesar to get smaller, uh, Christ has to get bigger in a whole bunch of areas of life. And, and, and that, I think, is the, the one way of summarizing uh, what you've said there. Even the way we talk right. about government, I mean, if you go back to the Puritans, and I know you, you're very familiar with the, with the work of the Puritans, they didn't talk about um, the government as the state. Um, the state was mm. civil government. It was one form of right. government. Politicians were part-time. That was true in England. It was true in the United States. You know, uh, you sit for a few weeks. The, the, the civil government was a small thing. Uh, it, was, it was just one aspect of many areas of government. The family was a government. And, of course, that is the, 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 the first and fundamental government in human existence. Um, the church was seen by people as a government. We're living in a time when we don't take church government seriously, when we don't take church discipline seriously. We don't see the church really as a form of government in our lives. We see it as a mm. sort of service provider uh, that exists to, uh, if I pay my dues, I expect the following sorts of services, um, the following you know provisions made for me. Rather than recognizing that the church, yes, as a as a is a place of worship, um, but it's also where where I come under the appropriate government of Christ for that area of life. Uh, in the vocations, um, the the development, of course, from the medieval period of guilds and associations. So even to this day, we've still got the remnants of it uh, with um, the medical community. Um, uh, will have its own associations. Um, the, the the legal community has its own uh, registration and associations. Um, the bar associations, you can be struck off um, because the vocations are a form of government. The the the, the, the uh, in fact, however you're employed, you're 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 um, under a boss. So even if you're not a psychologist or a doctor or a lawyer at risk of being struck off, um, you are uh, always at risk of being disciplined or dismissed. Um, so the vocations are a form of government. Now, what we've done and what you've alluded to is with the surrender of the, the, the gradual uh, surrender of the principle of sphere sovereignty, which was so hard won, um, mm. has been the... Um, encroachment and the, the 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 expectation now placed upon the state is that it will be a saving institution it's a messianic state um that it is now priestly and saving we want the the state to give us cradle to grave security we want it to be the source of providence of providence in our lives we've transferred um ultimate sovereignty uh, to the state. The state is now the lawgiver. Instead of it being uh, the, the, the organ, the institution which recognizes the juridical application of God's law, now um, the state is the source of law. Um, and it no longer even looks to the church for guidance about how to understand God's word with regard to the law, even though if you take England, for example, um, all of our uh, political institutions symbolically and uh, juridical institutions still symbolically recognize that the two tassels for example on a on a lawyer's garment the two white tabs mm -hmm. represented the two tables of the law the crown the our crown courts the, the law of god hung upon the walls of the crown courts in our church liturgy um the 10 commandments were part of the the liturgy of the church on a weekly basis uh, mm. The coronation, which we've just seen reenacted, that goes all the way back to Solomon um, with King Charles III, it is absolutely chock full of the recognition of Christ's mm. ultimate lordship, the state's submission to Christ and his law and his gospel, its obligation to defend that law 
uh, and gospel and submit to it. The Bible is under the dispatch box where the prime minister gets up uh, at question time to speak. All this symbolism, which as you and I know, Steve, has become largely pantomime. Um, it's the tragedy comedy right. era, really. Um, it Tragic because uh, it is gone, it's declining. Comic because it continues. Um, that's what kind of pantomime, mm. uh, that's the comical element within it um, when the substance has gone. The, the, the pr- president in the United States, where you are now, takes the oath of office on the Bible, used to take it on an open Bible to Deuteronomy 27 mm. and 28, invoking the blessing and cursings of God upon the nation. So there was this public recognition that the civil government was just one form of government of many, that its role was very limited. It was uh, 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 its, its, its concern was a harmony of public legal interest uh, to be a ministry of justice. Now it's a ministry of education and a ministry of welfare welfare and a ministry of everything. And it costs in Britain, as you know, uh, half of GDP is government spending. Uh, It's the functioning of the state. Um, The tax burden now in the UK is the highest it's been since World War II in in 70 years. Uh, The NHS... Mm -hmm. Uh, socialized medicine, which is an uh, uh, an, an insatiable behemoth, um, I think is the the largest. I think is about eleven billion now. Um, apart from our national debt, is the largest bill. Those are the two largest bills, by the way. The national debt paying for the state largesse, and the national health service, socialized medicine, um, which simply is mm. has proven to be ultimately insatiable and unfundable. So the state becomes a ministry of all of these things, becomes larger and larger mm. to the point where eventually the tax base simply no longer exists to pay for it because we demand that the state be our savior uh, and our Lord. And um, it, it cannot bear right. that burden because Jesus Christ is savior and Lord and his kingdom is the only totalizing principle allowed in scripture. Hmm. And so it's fascinating. I mean, because the the frustration that you're echoing is is one that I see here, that I feel myself personally. And you you, you know always that the clock is ticking on that mountain of ever increasing debt. It brings me back to this question of okay, so what do we do? And I, maybe if I can frame it in a different way, it it strikes me. And I remember I, I was invited to give a presentation at Christian Concern, and I I spoke about this. And maybe eight nine years ago, I can't. Maybe even you were there um, when I talked about the way in which the churches worship, and then the relationships that we have within families and between Christians w- w- among among our brothers in Christ, then permeate out into the world in the form of transformation. The mechanism of which we cannot always discern, and this is picking up. It's just interesting looking at the bibliography of your big book, this is picking up on some of the writing that was done by people in the next generation after Rush Dooney and Gary North, who you cite Mm -hmm. a lot in here. So uh, Jim Jordan, who's actually a member of the congregation here at All Saints now, that was one of the weirdest moments of my ministry so far, welcoming as a member in in, at All Saints, uh, one of my theological mentors. That was great. Um, But what Jim established in many writings is that the the description of the goal that was put that was laid down and articulated by if you like the first and second generation of the theonomists um gary north mm-hmm. greg barnson and rush dooney before them is, is correct you know and you could argue about the details but basically they're right the application of the word of god to every area of life but jim's distinctive contribution at that point was to say that yeah the way that that goal is brought about in history, that the structure of eschatology that we have to have in our minds is that by renewing the worship of the people of God in the sanctuary, so to speak, the the relationships within the community in their day-to-day lives are transformed, and that then permeates out into the world. So relationship with God in the sanctuary, relationship between our brothers and sisters in the community of the church, relationship between in the world. And you cited Saul, I mean, 1 Samuel 13, and of course, that's exactly what happens. But in reverse, you've got a sinful sacrifice in chapter 13. 
Then in chapter 14, his relationship with his son within the community and, and the rest of the Israelite army, that crumbles because of his, his tyrannical command that nobody should eat before the battle is over. And then chapter 15, um, you've got the refusal to carry out the instructions concerning the king of the Amalekites. So that's its sanctuary, brotherhood, world. And so I, want, I, I can't remember where you stood on this whole debate, whether we talked about it before. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Jordan's insight here. How, how do you feel about that as a decisive part of our calling as the church mm-hmm. to reestablish faithful Lord's Day worship, renewing covenant with the Lord, and expecting mm-hmm. to see that over time permeate into our families down through the generations to transform the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was a really important contribution that, um, uh, that Jim made uh, to the whole discussion about uh, transformation. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you made the point uh, absolutely correctly that the biggest mistake we could make is to think that, right, what we have to do then is what the statists do. Uh, we have to seize mm-hmm. control now of the levers of power, take a statist view, essentially take on the statist view and merely impose top-down a Christian version, a Christianized version of what the present state is doing. Um, and that mm. would be a terrible mistake, in part because um, politics, which is an aspect of culture, is, I would say, at the, uh, at the, at the mouth, not the source. So uh, the, at the, at the source... Um, it's downstream. You know, we've got... Yes, it's downstream. It's cultural. The cultural life of a people is reflected in politics. Um, and so political life really expresses uh, what's going on culturally. And so in many respects, you could say that in, to, to some degree, uh, it's, it's much less important than, than culture. Culture, cultus, worship. Cult, mm. uh, colere in Latin, I think. Um, and we, so we still have this connection with worship in the, in the, in the word cult, cultus, worship. W- worship... Liturgy literally means public work, and mm-hmm. um, worship is wo- worship is warfare. So uh, you know, various aspects of our life are part of that spiritual warfare. But but worship is warfare, and in some respects, what we do on a Sunday uh, is we completely, by God's grace, align ourselves with heaven, um, with right. with what God is got with His will, with His purpose. We align ourselves to that we hear His word. We we renew covenant. Uh, we uh, confess our sins. Um, we recognize Christ's righteousness and justice, and then we are sent out into the world um, uh, after mm. Sabbath, um, where there is a lack of alignment um, between uh, heaven and earth. And we're set to the task in our families and in our vocations and workplace. And that might be as a magistrate. It might be as an MP, wherever it is, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. We now, in terms of the resources of the Holy Spirit and in terms of the instruction of his word that we've just heard uh, and um, the renewal of our covenant life that we've just participated in, we go out in power. And, you know, the the ecclesia, the called out people, we are called out in terms of a purpose. We're not just a holy huddle um, to, uh, to, 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 to be protected from the nasty world on a Sunday until we can come back and just be topped up again. Um, we're, we're, we're called out in terms of the purposes of the kingdom of God, and we're sent out, mm. apostolos, in terms of that uh, kingdom purpose. So Rush Dooney actually used to talk about, look, the, the, the work of rebuilding happens in church basements, around family tables, right. um, on, on, on a walk with our children uh, in the park, in the, at, at our office desk on quietly on a Monday morning. Um, it's not that dramatic. It, it, it's not Big Bang Christianity. It, it's not uh, the sort of nuclear explosion of a of a evangelical president. Typically, um, you know, God grant mm. that at some point downstream, uh, we will one day see um, a, a faithful Christian believer 
committed to the fullness of God's word in these very uh, senior positions. God will do that in his in his time, but it's this um, it's this seeping out effect that you're talking about. Mm. That as we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, and we are transformed, that we then go out and see that transformation. Um, and so yeah. this is why it's such a serious issue when the church becomes apostate and ceases right. to fulfill right. its mandate, because if the church is no longer um, ma- uh, manifesting the the offices of prophet, priest, and king um, in uh, t- as we gather together, then how can we possibly expect that uh, that outside of our gathering, in terms of the 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 um, the, the, co- the concerns of the kingdom of God in every area of life, if the place mm. where we're supposed to be centered around those concerns uh, abandons them, then we are in right. serious trouble. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, it's helpful to hear you talk about this, um, Joe, because um, hel- pastorally, it helps people to understand why they feel sometimes the frustration that they do. You know, because just to go back again to the the faithful week by week worship the letting that seep out into our family life into our working lives and so on it feels small it feels slow it feels insignificant it's like back to nehemiah and ezra it's like you're just one of those goldsmiths who's just grabbed a shovel and a trowel and you're just working on your three foot bit of wall trying to build it up and as you're doing this it takes you a long long time and the only way that you can see that it's making a difference is by having the the biblical eschatology that's willing to be a very small cog in a very large machine. And yeah. that's really one of the things I, I keep wanting to say to people. I keep wanting to say it to mothers of children, to men who are working hard in a demanding job that's draining, um, uh, to people who are struggling with uh, all kinds of just the practical things of life, people fighting against the the sins that beset us routinely and sometimes particularly intensely. I want to say, look, your daily and sometimes hourly battles are contributing to something. And the eyes of faith will see the long term. They'll see the big picture. They'll see the thousand generations. And you start to see then why our humility and our our willingness to be a small part is so important. Because if in a sense, we're then back to the, the statist alternative. If we weren't humble, if we weren't willing just to be nothing, to decrease so that Jesus could increase, then we would insist on rattling the cage and making a bigger difference, which just ends up being counterproductive because we're not cutting with the grain of what is actually biblical eschatology, this long-term project uh, of seeing God work through us to renew the world. Well, the the part of the challenge there is that we live in a completely instant culture that uh, demands right. instant results. Political parties, you know, campaign on immediate and instant change. So, we, we, it, we rather than a, a, a perspective of regeneration and transformation, we live in an era of revolutions, and it's all it's always right. this revolutionary mentality, which means you know, destroy it all now and rebuild it in, in as we want it. Uh, and that's just not the way God works. I mean, between Augustine saying, you know, what are states uh, without justice, but gangs of thieves, um, to Oliver Cromwell is over a thousand years. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the wheels of providence turn exceeding slow. And I think that the, um, the part of the, the difficulty we've got now um, even with those who are beginning to recognize, look, we've we've pietized the gospel, we've truncated the message of the gospel, mm. uh, we've um, we, we've lost the comprehensiveness of, of of the meaning of Christianity. They think that the quick and immediate fix is um, uh, is just around the corner, um, and right. the notion that we might have to plant trees, the shade of which we will right. never sit in, does not occur to that many people. Um, and you know where we've come to in the last, you know, really since the French Revolution in in the West, that sort of revolution of revolutions, two hundred and fifty odd years to, to get to the point where we now can't tell what a man and a woman is. So we're not going to um, see 
the the re-Christianization of the West overnight. Now, I pray that it doesn't take 250 years. Uh, you know, we've got um, forms of communication that we, 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 we've never had in the past. The, the eras, the epochs in which we live um, don't have a one-to-one correspondence. God can do surprising things, and we should be praying big prayers and, and believing big things that God would do things. But we have to be in this, as you've said, that wonderful text, you know, to, about God's faithfulness, covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who uh, who love him and keep his commandments. We need to be thinking in terms of the thousand generations. So, you know, how am I teaching my children? How am I training them and, and, and equipping them? How am I serving in mm. my local um, ecclesia, in my local gathered community? What small steps am I taking in the workplace to to see the right. reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ? How am I running my own business? Um, and then where God gives um, uh, opportunity, we should be thinking, well, Lord, right, right, if it's right. good for us, if this is so, if 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 um, if your word is such a blessing to us, you know, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to right. any people. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Well, well then we're going to want that for our land as well. And so we're going to move then mm. into local political life. We're going to move into these different aspects quite naturally as a result of that transformation of our own hearts. But it will take time and it takes faithfulness. And it doesn't sound very romantic and all that sexy uh, because it's not happening in this revolutionary, right. big bang nuclear option uh fashion that we often uh right. you know really want to see because we're such an impatient uh culture now mm. no it's really valuable joe it's really valuable i i find myself wanting to say this to with uh, the large numbers of new people we've been blessed with here at all saints in the last few months and and years we've seen some really wonderful growth god has been very kind to us and um We've been blessed with some great families joining us, really, really wonderful people. And I keep wanting to say, um, buckle up, long haul ahead. Um, don't expect revolutionary change overnight. Um, let's uh, get set for the marathon, not the sprint. And then I think you're, the exactly. flip side that you're saying then is it is absolutely remarkable what God does in the lives of uh, people. And then just occasionally you get these uh, providential opportunities and you or you do see huge change. I mean, we just saw the end of Roe over here i mean like yeah. nobody saw that coming 20 years ago so it's just the you know our, our ways are in the hands of the lord uh buckle up for the long haul and see what the lord does i'm really excited joe about um you being back in the uk i miss our friends over there and um the thought that the ezra institute is um returning whence it came is uh encouragement to me you've got some news about a conference uh, over in the UK in November, if anybody uh, of our listeners is over there, and also um, some training programs here in the US. Give us just a final word on that, Joe, and then I'll let you go because I know you've yeah. got some other appointments to get to. Yeah, so um, we do run basically uh, conferences and training programs in Canada and the United States, and uh, the US is actually our head office uh, for mainly for um, safety reasons for our charity and our intellectual <laughs> property and all of those things um, uh, strategically. Um, so we, we're running training in Canada, the US and and now in, in the UK. And uh, this November, November 4th, we have our very first um, Mission of God conference for Ezra. In the UK, the word institute is actually protected by Companies House now. Um, and we're not grandfathered in like the Christian Institute or the LICC. So we're actually ha we actually have to be called the um, uh, the Ezra Center for Christian Thought in the UK, but that is basically the Ezra Institute UK. Um, and on November 4th, we're holding our first Mission of God conference, and we're partnering with our friends at Christian Concern for that. We've got a great speaker lineup. Uh, it's in Daventry. And if people just go mm -hmm. on to our website or to the Christian Concern website, so it's ezrainstitute.com or christianconcern.com, and look at the events, uh, you'll be able to register through Eventbrite for the Mission of God conference on November 4th. In in the States, um, we have events going on all the time, and um, those are, are, are usually posted fairly rapidly to our, our website. Uh, but two things to flag up would just be we have a teen uh, worldview cultural apologetics training program. It's called the Worldview Youth Academy, um, and that's happening next summer. 
Um, and uh, we also have a program for sort of young professionals, university students and young professionals up to about the age of 39. Um, and that's the Cultural Leadership Academy. So if you're interested in you know, if, what you've heard on this program today and the kind of things that mm. you and I have just been discussing and you think, you know, I need this equipping and training for my teenager or you're a young professional or a university student, you think I want to get deep into this i need to understand better what it means to think christianly then please explore um our our programs um and uh and and delve into our website and our resources our our ezra press Uh, we have a weekly podcast called the podcast for cultural reformation um which uh um, usually i'm on most weeks if not we have excellent guests and that's a good resource for people. And then lastly, I am actually speaking at a conference in Texas. And I was racking my brains trying to think of the detail. But it's coming <laughs> up in the spring. Myself, Doug Wilson, and some others are speaking um, at, a, uh, at, a, at, a, at a conference in Texas hosted by Right Response Ministries. So you can find right. out about this, that conference um, at um, rightresponseministries.com. Um, and that is right there Wonderful. in Texas in the spring next year. So I'll, I'll be. So I hope we, we can get together, Steve, uh, while I'm over there. That'd be awesome. Just around the corner. If yeah. Well, not yeah, around if, the if corner. You're in I Texas, think you're about you an hour only... and a half away. I was going to say, if you're in Texas, you might only be ten hours away. That'd be quite close, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think I checked the map. All right, I, I, I just had one of my colleagues check, and I think you're you are just under two hours away from where the conference is. So right. I accept no excuses well, maybe we'll for see. us not getting together for lunch. In that case, I'm looking forward to it very much, Joe. Um, Listen, thank you very much once again uh, for your time today. Um, Guys, I hope you've enjoyed watching this. Um, If you want to reach out to Joe and his team at uh, Ezra about any of those resources or events, please do. Um, uh, Don't reach out to me because I'm just going to send you to him. You'll be able to find all his information uh, online. He's got um, a great team of people working with him. Joe, thanks again for being with us today. Lord bless you, and I hope very much to see you soon. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you.